So we're in a series. We started last week on Pentecost Sunday, and we had a great service last week. Thank you. You guys broke the mold. See, Pastor Jade talked about Pentecost Sunday a couple of weeks before and said, all right, church, a little family talk. Pentecost Sunday, the last two or three years, we've had like crazy sound demons and power outages, and half the church is laid on Pentecost Sunday. He said, I'm going to give you a heads up. It's in two Sundays. Come prepared. Come fired up. And you guys did. And I am proud of you. It was an outstanding week last week. So if you missed it, go back and listen to the message on the podcast. But we started a series called The Spirit of Pentecost. And we're framing this four-week series around the Holy Spirit in the church as the people of God, which is different than what has typically been spoken of as the Holy Spirit around Pentecost, which oftentimes centers a lot on the individual gifts, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, signs, wonders, miracles, which are all wonderful, and we're not negating those things. We're just coming at it from a different angle. So this year, we got together and talked about uh, having a series where we talk about the work of the Spirit in the church in the people of God, in the body of Christ. And last week, Pastor Jay talked about how the Spirit creates the church. And this week, we're going to talk about how the Spirit gathers the church. And it's going to take me a little bit to get there. And you may think, uh, I think he lost his train of thought, but I didn't. So I'm letting you know what we're talking about because I'm going to come full circle there at the end. But I want to take a few minutes and unpack a little bit more of Pentecost, as we see in Scripture in Acts chapter 2, because there is so much to that event in Scripture that, frankly, growing up in an Assembly of God and a Church of God church, which are both highly charismatic denominations, for years, I had no idea of much of the significance of Pentecost. And what we see, if we look throughout Scripture, is we see that in the Old Testament, there are signs and foreshadowing uh, of events that would come in the time of Jesus that Jesus would fulfill and reinterpret, right? So one of these is Passover. And Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, on that Thursday night, most likely before he was crucified, Jesus meets with the disciples for a Passover meal, what most scholars believe, and that meal is reinterpreted in light of Christ. And now we celebrate Holy Communion, the Eucharist, which we will do at the end of this service, but we do it with Passover in mind, reinterpreted through the lens of Christ. And there are other events in the Old Testament that that's, that exact same principle applies in the New Testament. And that happened with Pentecost. Pentecost is a re-envisioning of a previous event. Actually, a couple of previous events. And we're not going to unpack all of that. But I promise when you see some of the things that I have seen, it will open your mind to the significance of the Pentecost event. So I'd like, if we could, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11. And we're going to talk about one of these stories. Genesis chapter 11, a little obscure story that we're most probably all aware of, the story of the Tower of Babel. And we know what happens at the Tower of Babylon. In just a moment, we're going to start and only read a few verses here. But I'm going to set the context for the Tower of Babel. So what we see here, starting in verse 3, is that they said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Not extremely important. Then they said, Come, 
They had the eureka moment. Come, let us build for ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So let's time out real quick. So let's get the context of what's happening. This is immediately after Noah and the ark. And the chapter previous to this is called uh, the Table of Nations, where basically it's a list of genealogies where Noah's three sons, they separated and they inhabited different areas. And it just lists off some of their lineage. And this is the, the next story. So this is right at the beginning of civilization post-flood. And we see that people came together to insulate themselves from the world and build a city with a tower reaching to the heavens. And then we see here in verse 6, I believe it is, that the Lord looks down and says, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing that they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. And it's very, very easy to miss what's happening here and to misinterpret what the Lord is doing in confusing their languages. And I've heard many and many, many messages on this, but I've never heard this. Let's go back and look at that verse four, where they said, come let us build for ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. Take note. So that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the earth. And I would like to submit to you that I do think it is a big deal that they wanted to make a name for themselves. I think that, that the Lord took issue with that. But what I think might be just as big of a deal, and the reason that the Lord came down and scattered their languages, is because what they wanted to do was they wanted to, this is in the beginning of tribal civilization, they wanted to build a wall and build a city and then build a tower reaching to the heavens. And... They wanted to insulate themselves from all the surrounding peoples. And they wanted a tower that, notice it says, reaching to the heavens, where they could have alone access to the power of God. And they wanted to be insulated from the world, which is not exactly God's command or his design for humanity. See, God in the beginning created man, commanded them to multiply, and God's vision was to have the earth filled and inhabited with his image-bearing creatures. What he does not want is a group of people with a monopoly on his presence insulating themselves from the world. Come on, y'all, that's good. So he comes down and scatters their language, which does what? It forces them to go out and to scatter and to advance civilization. Something that you may have never equated with this story or with the Pentecost story is that I believe God scattering and confuse, God's confusing their languages is actually more of his mercy and it's more of a blessing. And it's what God does almost all the time when he takes our broken, messed up motives and he does something that feels like punishment and it feels terrible, but in the end, it ends up working out some kind of good in his plan. And I believe that this story is a precursor and something that is now reinterpreted in the story of Pentecost. And we'll see why here in just a second. So let's flip over to Acts chapter 2, the passage that we have all heard time and time and time again. 
And we're gonna read that passage as it is on the screen. So I'll start in verse one. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on them. Notice the tongues came and then separated. They did not come as individual tongues. It came down as one and then separated. That will be important here in a minute. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are these not all Galilean men who are speaking? Then how is it that each of us hears in their own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia. Man, I need a breather right now. Just one second. Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in their own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? And so I pose the question, what does this mean? In light of the story of Babel, I believe that one of the many things that is going on here is that God is sanctioning the diversity of humanity and saying, I want all and every nation, every language for my people. Because notice when it says that they spoke in other languages, it wasn't that they all spoke in one language and it wasn't that they all spoke in a heavenly language. It's that these Galileans spoke in a language that the onlookers could understand, which surely would have communicated to them that the spirit, whatever is happening, if this truly is God, he is sanctioning this diversity. He's not wanting uniformity. God is wanting to bring real, authentic unity out of real human diversity under the headship of Jesus Christ and call that his church. So last week when we talk about the birthing of the church at Pentecost, it's much bigger than God just pouring out his spirit on a random group of people. It's God is causing people who would normally speak one language to speak in the language of onlookers who really have no clue what's going on as a message to them that this kingdom, this church is for you. This is to include you. God has never been interested in human uniformity. Uniformity is by nature in opposition to diversity. But the Spirit here in Acts chapter 2 sanctions human diversity as a part of the fulfillment of God's original intention. And we see this in the book of Revelation chapter 5, where there is every nation and every tongue gathered around the throne singing, right? God loves diversity. And God chooses to make his people a diverse people. Furthermore, God also doesn't want us reaching to him as a way to be insulated from the world. And we talked about this in our Revelation series. We've talked about this in our Faithful Presence series, that God is calling you and me, and even greater than that, the church, 
to be in and among the world as his faithful presence, his faithful presence to mediate his presence, to bring reconciliation, right? These are all things that we've already talked about even just this year. And we cannot do that if we are not united. At Pentecost, God inaugurates his ultimate vision of bringing real unity from real diversity under the reign of Jesus Christ. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit overcame and reinterpreted what happened at Babel. It wasn't that the diversifying of languages at Babel was a bad thing. It was the motive behind wanting to have one language that was a bad thing. And that was human uniformity. Wanting to be insulated, not out and among the world as the people of God. And God says, I want nothing to do with that. I want nothing to do with my people being insulated and kept apart where they can't touch and can't affect the world. And, and here's just a little, little soapbox that I, I have personally. So this will only be about 30 seconds. If you want to yawn, or that's cool. This is just me. This is not the message. But why is it that Christians who are filled with the Spirit are more worried about being contaminated by the world than contaminating the world? Like why, now, that, now hear me, there are real lines and wise boundaries that Christians should have. And, and so let's just get that out in the open. I'm not talking about just go and do everything the world does. But why can we not, like Christ, go out and be among sinners like Zacchaeus, and then as soon as they're done with their meal, we see authentic repentance why can that not ha Why do we have to be insulated to preserve our faith? And the answer is, of course, we don't. And that's not what God is interested in. So God has always been about building his people. And this we see reinterpreted once again on Acts 2. Before Acts 2, God had primarily been forming his people out of the Jews, right? And at this point, we see it expanded beyond the Jews. And there was that whole exhaustive list there that I read where God is now saying, you all are included. I've always wanted you to be included, but creating and forming a people is a process. And now is the time I'm bringing you all into this work that I am doing. So let's uh, skip over to the end of Acts chapter 2. So we, we have the outpouring moment where the tongues of fire come down and uh, the, the languages uh, are translated some supernatural way. And then they ask, what's going on? And so Peter stops what he's doing, and Peter tells them. And Peter preaches a fiery gospel message that I'm sure we've all read multiple times. And then immediately after that, at the end where it says, 3,000 were added to their number, Acts chapter 2, 42 says, Then they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship of breaking bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they, they gave to anyone as he had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. How often? Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. 
So what we see here is a description of what happened after the day of Pentecost. This is not a formula. It's not a quote-unquote prescription for what we should necessarily do, but it is indicative of what and why the early, early church did in becoming a people. So it says that they, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayer, and they continued to gather together in the temple courts. These people realized that they could not figure out what it is to be this newfound people of God on their own. Did you guys catch that? That they realized that for them to figure this thing out and to work it out and see what does all of this mean to be the people of God? What does it mean to be the church? What does it mean when the Holy Spirit pours out in languages? And this is like days later, they're trying to figure all of this out. And they recognize we can't do it alone. We are not able to do it alone. And notice they also did not forsake meeting in the temple courts. This is not prescriptive, this is descriptive, and it's indicative, and it has messages for us. There is a big problem when we think now that we can learn to be the people of God on our own. When we think that we can figure out what it means to be the people of God on our own, we're headed down a trail that is not only dangerous, it's new to Christianity. It's 200 years old. 200 years ago, there was no question, no conversation about how do you learn to be a Christian? You go to church. You meet with the people of God. And that is not to say that the church is perfect and that the church is not lacking and that the church is oftentimes not misguided. But what it does mean is that none of us can help the church or help the world if we forsake meeting together. And that is clear in Hebrews chapter 10, which we're going to hit here in just a minute. <clears throat> so jumping into the meat of this, if the goal of the Lord is creating a people that are his body and his faithful presence in the earth, then it is impossible to do that without our gathering. There are certain manifestations of God, God's presence that are unique to the gathered body. I want to jump back just for a second to Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. We have often heard that on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit came. And that is not correct. The Spirit, as we see in Genesis 1, has always been present the Spirit was brooding over the chaos. The Spirit was the breath of God from Genesis 1 through the book of Revelation and into this very moment right now. The Spirit has never not been present. But at Pentecost, what happens is the Spirit is present in a new way. Does that make sense? That, that at Pentecost, it wasn't that Jesus is now absent and the Spirit is now present. And as Jesus was ascending, the Holy Spirit is descending. That's not what happened. The Spirit at Pentecost became present in a new way to us, his people. And there is a unique manifestation of the presence of, of the Holy Spirit when we gather together today. It's not that the Holy Spirit is more present in this room right now than he is out in the parking lot or in Walmart or King Super or Garden of the Gods. It's not that he's more present here. It's that he's present differently because we are gathered as the body of Christ. 
You with me? Thanks, Leon. I appreciate that, man. So when we gather, we are responding to God's invitation to come and to learn how to be his people. We talked about this for like the first three weeks of the Faithful Presence series, that when we come, we are not, the staff is not inviting you to church, that the Spirit is dwelling here physically in us, around us, and also in this space. And the Spirit is inviting us to come together and to enter into worship and enter into encounter with Him together. This is not what, so when we have someone up here at the beginning of service and welcome you, and what we call it is the call to worship, that is not us calling you and provoking you to worship. That's not Caitlin this morning saying, hey guys, it's great to be a Christian, let's worship together. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's not what's happening. What's happening is we are reminding you that God has gathered us all together. And that carries so much more weight than me or anybody else up here saying, hey guys, welcome to church. There's nothing wrong with welcoming you to church, but we have to recognize when we come together, whether it's here in a home, it does not matter when when Christians gather to worship the Lord, they have first been summoned by the Holy Spirit. And if we can get that, that can change a lot of things. So what happens when we gather? Got a few things here, and I'm gonna jump in and give you a few very specific things. But I wanna talk about expectations and understanding here, right, right before I give you a list of some things that happen when we gather. Because this is important because it's not as if when we gather, these things happen automatically. There is a work of the Spirit that precedes us and goes beyond us and is bigger than us that we cannot stop. And then there is our part. And that is the role of participation. The role of framing our expectations, having right expectations, and partnering with our understanding. So there are some people who are perpetually frustrated coming to church. And I wanna say, I think that is probably because their expectations of what church is for is wrong. Or I should say misguided. Maybe not wrong, maybe misguided. That's a much nicer word, right? And if we come into this place and we are always upset, feeling like we like they don't sing songs that are my style, the service is too long, I never get prayed for, the messages are over my head, under my head, irrelevant, you fill in the blank, then maybe our expectations of coming need to shift a little bit. So what happens when we gather? One, we are formed into the image of Christ as we worship him together. Uh, If you guys remember a few weeks ago, uh, Apostle Dennis was here and he talked about this very thing. He talked about when we gather as a church, the goal is that we are formed together into a body that looks like the body of Jesus Christ. That is the goal. A scripture here from 1 Peter chapter 2, I'm just going to read it, it might be up on on the screen as well. Uh, Starting in verse five, it says, you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Skipping to verse nine, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. And an echoing verse here in Ephesians 2.22 says, and in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. You and I are pieces that, as 1 Peter 2 says, are being built into as living stones, the full one temple of the Holy Spirit, that you and I play roles in the building of the greater body of Christ. And I fear that too often we get this twisted backwards and we think that the church is a tool for us to advance spiritually in our own individual walk with Christ. When precisely the opposite is what Paul and Peter both say. And Paul says, if you read the the book of Ephesians, trust me, there is no more evidence needed that the ultimate goal is the one body, not the billions of individuals. That Jesus, by his spirit, is forming us and weaving us and placing and planting us where we are to be. That does not mean that our individual relationships with the Lord don't matter. It doesn't mean that when you come into this place, you shouldn't be seeking anything for yourself. It doesn't mean that private encounters are wrong. It means none of that. It just means all of the individual things are to serve to build up the body. I know that's countercultural, and I know that that is not the common the common speech and the common understanding of the existence of humanity here in America. But this is clearly, both Jesus, Paul, Peter, and John all teach this same thing throughout the New Testament, that we are the body, we are the temple. However, we have to learn to become the temple. And this is where there is a paradox. When a new baby is born into a family, is that baby not a full-fledged family member? Absolutely. Does that baby know how to function in that family? Absolutely not. And it takes years of training, years of assistance, years of encouragement, discipline, rebuke, practice, watching, trying, reinforcing, asking questions, all of those things to come into what that baby already is. And that is a family member. But if as a family member, that baby never learns what this family does at dinner time, then that baby can only partner in his or her role in the family, I feel like this analogy might be breaking down, but most of you are with me, you're tracking with me. But the point is, we ontologically, that's the word Pastor Jade taught us a couple of weeks ago, right? Meaning in our essence, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But there is a coming into that we must have. And how does that happen? That comes by our practices. That comes by the things we do. We learn to come into things by watching, by participating, by asking questions, by increasing our understanding, by praying and partnering with the work of the Holy Spirit. We as a church come into who we are called to be as the body of Christ. And ultimately, our affections and our desires will even change. So, little case study here. I was sitting, ironically, on Thursday at a coffee shop here in Colorado Springs, which will, which will na- remain nameless, 
And I'm working on this message and a lady literally at the table next to me, how ironic, is telling her friend how ridiculous it is to go to church. (laughs) Not just like church isn't for me, but like it's ridiculous. Why in the world would you ever do such a thing? These people do these rituals that think they actually have power to do something in their lives. This is what this, I mean, I'm literally like, I'm working on my laptop on this message and this conversation is happening. And I just couldn't help but laugh, but I tried not to actually laugh for fear of her asking me, what are you laughing at? And then, then we have a choice to make. So um, I, I didn't want to go there. I didn't want to go there. But the point is, the practices themselves really don't mean much void of the Holy Spirit. They don't. I mean, singing songs, uh, even the resurrection, (laughs) without the power of the Holy Spirit, it wouldn't mean for us today what it does, right? That we can enter into new life because of the resurrection and because that same spirit is in and with and among and around us. So because of the power of the Spirit, we believe that these rituals like singing songs and listening to me talk to you right now and coming up and eating a piece of cracker and juice, that these things actually have power to do something because of the Holy Spirit working in and through them. It's not that doing the things alone is going to shape us into the kind of people God wants us to be. If it's void of the Spirit, it is useless. But the forms do matter. It matters that we come. And it matters that we sing. And it matters that we listen and have open hearts. And it matters that we engage with one another. And that we learn to feel the pain and to share in the joys of the people around us. These things matter because loving our neighbor is loving God. And because doing these things that God has called us to do, like coming to the table and singing songs and listening to the proclamation of the gospel. These are things that are commanded throughout scripture over and over and over again. There must be some kind of power in them or God would not have asked us or commanded us to do them. So when we gather, we are formed into the image of Christ. I want us to look briefly here at uh, Hebrews chapter 10. This is just a passage I could not get away from this week. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. This is a passage that we've heard many, many times. And I believe at the end of last year, there was actually a a men's breakfast that was focused on this exact passage. But I'm just going to read it here. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, man, the longest sentence ever, right? And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Did you hear a theme? The corporate theme, the corporate you, the corporate us, 
entering into the presence of God, because we have a high priest, the corporate us having our hearts cleansed together, the corporate us spurring one another on, the corporate us learning to worship together to become the body of Christ. And then this is what I found so interesting. The last verse, that last sentence, let us not give up uh, meeting together and then jump to the end, as all the more and all the more as you see the day approaching. So what he's saying, or he, he or she, the author of Hebrews is saying, is it is increasingly important that you continue meeting. It's not just important right now, but as you see the day approaching, even more meet together, even more come into his presence and have your hearts cleansed even more, even more spur one another on, even more learn to love the person sitting next to you so that as you are in the world, you can be the faithful presence of Jesus Christ. See how I'm tying these series together? You guys like that? How we're just tying these two series together? That's real nice, huh? <clears throat> Anyways, my last point on point number one, and there's only three, and the next two are much shorter, so we're almost done, y'all. We, when I talked about expectations, there is a temptation in coming to church to think, I can do this better without them, or I can do this better on my own or somewhere else. Maybe that's never been a temptation for you. That is regularly a temptation for me. And I want to say that probably each of us could quote-unquote self-feed in a private devotional time more effectively, more sensationally, and get there much more quickly on our own. But that's not the purpose. The purpose is us being built up together as a body, which means that it will require preferring one another and mutual submission and maybe not having my needs met today because I've been called to meet the needs of another and maybe not having my gift exercised today because I need the gift that you're exercising in that moment. And it's teaching me much more than I ever could learn on my own in my own prayer closet. Now hear me, I feel like I have to qualify this. I am not telling you to not spend time in your prayer closet. What I am telling you is that the purpose of that and the purpose of this are different. Do you all hear me? Amen. Number two, what happens when we gather together? We receive and we pass on the tradition of our faith. 1 Corinthians 11 verse one says, now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I have delivered them to you. This is Paul talking to the Corinthian church and shortly after that, he gets into the communion discourse and he says, look, I am handing this to you as I have received it. And in First and Second Timothy, he tells Timothy two different times, preserve the gospel, guard this, because there will be people who want to distort this and twist it so that it, to manipulate people for their own good, to give them the life that they want to have for the sake of the gospel, which is not exactly Jesus's plan, right? We are called to receive and to pass on the tradition of our faith. 
And that's not a dry and dull and lifeless thing. There is power in stewarding and guarding and studying and perfecting and shining. Like think of it as a trophy that as a little kid you receive from your father. You're not really doing anything to it other than guarding it for your kids, right? The gospel is much, much, much more than that. It's not just a a trophy. But in the same way, we are to guard it, to revere it, to protect it, to cover it, to guard our hearts, to cover this. This is a sacred thing where we don't just get up here and say whatever we want. At least we shouldn't, and I hope that I'm not. We are called to protect, to maintain, and to pass on this gospel. And that is important. That can happen outside of the church, but it's important to happen inside the church because honestly, none of us really get the full gospel on our own. You know that? None of us really see the full picture of God, and certainly none of us see the full picture of humanity. And none of us fully on our own understand how to apply the gospel to the world around us. And this, there's this image in the book of Revelation where we see the Father at the center, and there are 24 elders around the Father. What I think is so fascinating about that is that they're, they're fixed around the throne, and they all have different perspectives of the throne. And that is much of what meeting together is all about. It's that we all see the Lord, we see the world, we see justice, we see peace, we see love, we see these things differently, and that is healthy. And we need that, which is one of the reasons we gather, and we hear from different people, and we give and we take on a regular basis. If everyone in the room was just like you, how much would we really be changed when we leave this place? Right? If everyone in the room believes the same way about every text and believes the same way politically, economically, in their family values, if every person around you believes the same way, then you are being unaffected. It is healthy that we have that diversity in the body. We need it. And then lastly, the third point, when we gather, we are trained to live together in mutual submission and mutual edification. There is this passage in Romans chapter 14 that most of your Bibles will say it's titled, The Weak and the Strong. And in this chapter, Paul is addressing the the church in Rome And the Jews and the Gentiles that have just got saved are in this church and they're arguing about feasts, about holy days, and about food primarily, and about what is clean and what is unclean. And if you read it, Paul is so diplomatic. It is not the Paul of Galatians that's like, basically, you're an idiot and you're wrong. Paul in Romans is so diplomatic. It's like his treatise, his magnus opus. And in there, he says, I am not convinced that Any food is unclean, but if it is for your brother, don't eat it. And that applies to so many things in life outside of the core values of the gospel. That there are so many things that we can agree or disagree on and still be within the will of the Father and in safe doctrine in the church. And sometimes I'm convinced it's actually better for us to be around people who believe differently than we do. 
Because that teaches us so much more than the wonderful feeling of confirmation bias when everything that's said we agree with all the time. That challenges us none. And if we want to be sharpened and formed and placed as living stones into this temple, into this body, then it is going to require some smushing and some grading of our edges and some being uncomfortable and being next to that person that I really was hoping was going to be on the other side of the throne, the other side on one of the other gates of the wall, right? But they got placed right next to me. Why? Not so that I can prove to them that I'm right, but probably so that I can learn humility and to listen and mutual submission. And I am preaching to myself more than anyone else in the room right now. The church is a training ground for how we are to live in the earth. We talked about reconciliation a few weeks ago and we mentioned this. If we can't get reconciliation in the church right, how in the world are we ever going to bring it to the world? That if we can't learn to argue and to disagree and to share and at the end of the day submit to one another in the church, how in the world are we going to bring the reconciling power of the gospel to the world? And the answer is we won't. We have to learn mutual submission and mutual edification in the church. And lastly, the practice of coming to the table happens when we gather and our, I would like to ask our communion attendants to, uh, to get ready. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, we mentioned verses 1 and 2 here just a couple of minutes ago. Paul is talking about this gospel that he has received and passed on. And then he addresses the Corinthian church in chapter 11, starting in verse 17. And he says, In the following directives, I have no praise for you. This is a legit rebuke of the church of Corinth. He says, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. Man, that, that was really fast, guys. Appreciate your, uh... yes, so you're going to listen for like three more minutes and then we're done. <clears throat> so sorry, y'all. He says, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. Skipping down to verse 20, he says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry and another gets drunk. Praise God, we don't have that issue in this church. <laughs> don't you have homes to eat in or drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. I'm going to skip down uh, to verse 27. And he says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. We're going to stop right there. What is Paul rebuking this body for? The logistics of it are that they're getting there early and eating their fill and others are getting none. But what ultimately Paul is putting his finger on is this preferring oneself over preferring the body and preferring that I get what's mine over you getting what you need and you getting what is most important for your being built up into the body. And this is what Paul rebukes 
And with pretty strong language, he says, coming to the table in an unworthy manner brings judgment on oneself. What is this unworthy manner? The unworthy manner is not regarding the community of faith, but regarding my own well-being over and above the community. And that is what Paul says we should not do. So here in just a moment, we're going to come to the table. But before, I want to give us a chance to examine our hearts and to examine our motives and to examine what we bring into this place with us. And before we do that, I would like to say that there is grace and mercy and no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And even if you find selfishness in your heart, which you will, and all of us will at some point in time, there is grace and there is mercy and there is no better place for that to be healed out of you than in the body of Christ. So let's take about 30 seconds and examine ourselves before we come to the table. would you make us a people who are open and humble and submitted to your will? Would you all stretch forth your hands toward these elements? We're going to pray a blessing over them. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come in power and that you would make these much more than juice and bread. And we ask that you would reveal Jesus in this meal that you would bring us together as a body, that you would shape us and form us every time we gather, even when we are unaware of what is happening. Holy Spirit, come and bless these elements in Jesus' name. Antioch, I would like to say one, one thing. At the end of a message like this, I, as a pastor on staff, say, I think so much of this we do so well. And I think Antioch is such a wonderful body. And I am so proud to be a part of this body. I hope that it was not a rebuke, but it was an encouragement to continue being faithful as the people we're called to be. I love you and this team loves you and it is also life group week. So let's go be the body throughout the week in our life groups, amen? Be blessed and sent into the world as the faithful presence of Jesus Christ. Amen.